Well, a very good morning to all and to all a good morning. As we come to uh, Scripture today, we're in for quite an adventure. You can gather from what we just heard read aloud. We don't just meet another king today, but we actually meet an acclaimed prophet. His name is Elijah. Can you say that? You're going to need to know his name. Today's story, the story in which he's introduced, conveys something of tremendous importance for us, and it's very essential to grasp this. Here's how I'd like to put it. As things get progressively worse in Israel, God shows himself not only present, but also greater. As things get progressively worse in Israel, God shows himself not only present, but also greater. Greater in terms of power, but also greater in terms of nobility of character. As we stroll through these two chapters, we're going to get a sense of what's the, what this looks like, and I hope that with you, as has been the case with me, it'll, it'll bring you a swell of understanding and love for God. Now, so as to avoid any confusion before I move forward, let me, let me offer an important clarification. In this sermon, and probably in the next few, I'm going to start referring to God using the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name that appears in these texts. That name, that word is Yahweh. Can you say that? Yahweh. Every time you see the word Lord in English, in your English Bible, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. The Lord is God. That means Yahweh is God. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is what's called the personal name for God. But interestingly, it's not actually a name. Uh, It just means I am what I am. You see, you you can't fit everything that God is into a name. He's too much. Right, so he just goes by this phrase, Yahweh, I am what I am. All right, on we go. And I don't think we're going to try to explore today. It's going to overload your brains, but I do hope and pray it will blow your minds. Okay. In chapters 16 and 17, things are getting worse in Israel. And they weren't good to begin with, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, right? To appreciate this downward spiral, you've got to see who's on stage now. Enter Ahab. Ahab's ruling the northern kingdom. By way of refresher, the northern kingdom is a pretty new political entity that came into existence in chapter 12, four or five chapters ago, right? Preston mentioned this last week. The northern kingdom is a part of the kingdom that was torn away from the house of David during the reign of King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right? Why was it torn away? What was Yahweh up to? Because Yahweh did that. He took it away, right? In short... It was taken away because of Solomon's moral and spiritual corruption. And according to chapter 12, that corruption gets passed right on down to his children and his son and heir, Rehoboam. See, just like Solomon, Rehoboam enjoyed playing dress up as Pharaoh. Well, Yahweh puts his foot down. We don't wear that costume in Israel, right? More of Egypt does not make the world a better place. And so God launches a reform movement. That's the northern kingdom. You got that? You all know about Watergate, right? Happened in the 70s, President Nixon. At the center of the Watergate debacle is an event known as the Saturday Night Massacre. In a matter of hours, the Attorney General of the United States resigned, and then the Deputy Attorney General of the United States resigned, and then the Special Prosecutor investigating Nixon administration resigned, and the Vice President resigned, and eventually the President resigned. For a while, nobody knew who was in charge. That's how things are in 1 Kings from chapter 12 to 16. It's a big game of musical chairs, and kings keep getting eliminated. 
It's one sordid conspiracy after another. I mean, one guy, a king called Zimri, he really tops the record. He reigns for about a week. Right? Finally, in chapter 16, a man called Omri, you heard him referenced in the reading earlier, Omri comes to the throne of the northern kingdom and things stabilize. But that's not good news. Why? Because Omri is a person of Canaanite descent. He's not a Hebrew, right? He probably came into Israel as a mercenary to work for one of the other kings, and he ends up at the top of the pyramid. Now, the problem with Omri, however, isn't his blood. It's his religion, right? Omri didn't have a good Jewish mother and a good Jewish father, right, to tell him about Yahweh, to introduce him to Yahweh. Omri's ancestors weren't there at the Exodus event when God brought his people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery and Pharaoh. He wasn't there. It wasn't part of his, his family narrative, right? Omri didn't know the law of God. He didn't know it, right? And he didn't pass it on to his children because you can't give what you don't have. For these reasons, you can expect that the northern kingdom is going to go further south. And it does. This bleak prognosis comes to a head during the reign of Ahab, Omri's son, his heir. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, it is very, very clear that Ahab makes things much, much worse in Israel. So look with me now at chapter 16, verses 30 through 32 and 34. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and he served Baal, and he worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And in his days, Hill, a man called Hill of Bethel, built Jericho, and he laid its foundation at the cost of his son, and in violation of the word spoken through the Lord, uh, to, by the Lord through Joshua, the son of Nun. These four verses pack a punch. Unlike certain unnamed contemporary politicians, the book of Kings can say a lot even when it only uses a few words. Let's focus briefly on two items here. In verse 34, we read about the city of Jericho. Under Ahab's administration, it gets rebuilt. Something shouldn't be rebuilt. That's the point. This is scandalous. Why? The rebuilding of Jericho, a city which God himself tumbled back in the book of Joshua, is explicitly forbidden. Go read Joshua chapter 6. It is forbidden. Do not rebuild this city. Why? because of what Jericho represents. Jericho was once a mighty Canaanite city, and Canaanite cities were a lot like Egypt. They just had less overall wealth. You know, an analogy, a bit like maybe Cuba would have been to, compared to the mighty USSR during the Cold War. Small version of the same thing. In this ancient context, Canaanite cities were places of exploitation, Brutality and injustice, right? They were places that constantly plotted and waged war. That's what life was like. In the case of Jericho, God himself knocks it down, right? He unmakes this city as part of his desire to bring true blessing and true flourishing to all people in the area of the world known as Canaan. Right? By the way, if you remember the story in Joshua, you wonder about the little detail. The Israelites are told by God just to walk around the city seven times. They don't actually do anything. They just walk around it seven times, and then God knocks the walls down, right? What's that all about? Seven. It's a number of blessing. 
It's a number that represents God's goodness, right? The end of Jericho symbolized the beginning of dignity and humanity and justice and equity in the land of Canaan. Light is coming into darkness. But now we see Ahab affecting a horrendous reversal. He's regyptifying Israel. And if you don't know what that word means, it's okay, I made it up a few nights ago. It's shorthand for re-Egyptianizing, regyptifying. Good word, huh? I'm going to write the OED and see if they'll put it in next year. Ahab is undermining the social vision that Yahweh has given to these, to these people, right? Folks, this is the equivalent. This is equivalent to a contemporary German politician attempting to revitalize Nazism in Germany. That's what this, that's what this means. Without God's help, we can't help but think inside the same old boxes. And that's exactly what Ahab is doing. What's the reason for all this? Why is Ahab doing this? Well, the answer is in verses 31, 32, and 33, right? Ahab brings a false but nonetheless rival God right into the center of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? Something like this already happened with Jeroboam. Preston talked about it last week. Jeroboam set up some rival false gods in the form of golden calves, and people started worshiping the cows, right? Well, the calves have turned into sheep. There's a new God on the block, and his name is Baal. Baal, right? (laughs) Ahab is not just compromising the worship of Yahweh. He's, He's displacing it. That's what's going on here, right? Why? Why is all this happening? Because of his wife Jezebel. We've seen this before with King Solomon, remember? His wives. Jezebel is a Sidonian. And guess what? Sidon is the HQ for Baal worship, right? Her father, Ethbaal, was not only the king of Sidon, he was a priest of Baal. By the way, that's why they both have the cognate Baal in their name, Ethbaal, Jezebel. You see? They're big into the Baal stuff. Not surprisingly, Jezebel is very zealous to bring Baal worship into Israel. And she doesn't want Baal just to be an option. She wants Baal to be the boss. That's what's going on here in the house of Ahab. This is big time bad news. How so? For all you academic types, one scholar, John Walton at Wheaton, puts it like this. Israel's embrace of Canaanite religion, like Baalism, is far more insidious than the cultic activity alone. It's not just about going to a temple and worshiping, right? It represents the adoption of an entire worldview replete with gods of vice and self-serving despots who are going to turn the ethics of biblical law upside down. In other words, you are what you worship. The object of your worship affects who you are and who you, and who you become, morally, ethically. Right? If you worship money, for example... If that's what you really give yourself to, then you're gonna, you should expect to become like money as a person. Cold, crisp, calculating. Someone who translates every person they meet into terms of financial worth. Someone who relates to other people in a transactional manner. If money's your God, you're going to start acting like money. That's what's going on with Baal. Big time bad news, right? And as we'll see, especially over the next two weeks, the people who follow Baal, who worship Baal, they still, they kill, and they do all sorts of ill. That's what happens. That's going to happen as surely as lightning follows thunder. What we're seeing here with Ahab is the closing of the blinds. The light of God is being shut out of Israel. And so things have gotten worse, much worse, in fact. We can see this very clearly. 
but we're not the only ones who can see it. So does Yahweh. Verse 33 tells us that Ahab was the most despicable king in Israel thus far. And so he's going to have to deal with one of the most powerful prophetic interventions in Israel up to this point. It comes in the form of Elijah, the prophet. Now, what's a prophet? Some of you may know, some of you maybe don't know. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, prophets are people called by Yahweh to speak truth to power. They're called to display Yahweh's authority, His justice, and His mercy where it's needed. There are people who are supposed to cut against the grain because they stick close to God. It's also fair to say that prophets are people who have remarkable spiritual BS meters, and Elijah certainly does. And in chapter 17, this prophet Elijah is raised up to confront a warped king and to confront the delusion of Baal. His mission is embodied by his name. Guess what Elijah means? It means Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. And Elijah's activity shows us that Yahweh is not absent from all of this, but in fact, he's present and he's greater. He's greater in terms of his power, but also in terms of his nobility of character. Now, in order to appreciate what we're about to explore in chapter 17, which is awesome, You need to know something about the Baal mythology at this time, right? If you don't know this, you're going to miss the glory. Let me just give you two observations about Baalism at this time, the Baal mythology. First, in historical context, Baal was seen to be the god of the rain, right? He he was seen to be a god who who had control over the weather, and therefore he was linked with the fertility of the land, right? No rain, no crops. Second, in Canaanite mythology, Baal took part in... In an annual cycle, year in and year out, this happened. Every year, Baal would have to submit to Mot, M-O-T. Not talking about the Ministry of Transportation. Mot, M-O-T, the name of a god who represented death. And in this mythology, Baal had to submit to Mot. And then Baal would enter into the underworld, to the land of death, and the story would end. And then the next year, the same story would start again. That's how the mythology cycle worked. At the time of Elijah, this was common knowledge in all the little cities of the ancient Near East and in and around Canaan, right? And Ahab and Jezebel want to make it common knowledge in Israel. They want everybody to drink this Kool-Aid. You need to hold this in mind. This helps us understand what Elijah's story is all about and allows us to see that God is using him to totally subvert Baal, to explode Baalism, right? Yahweh doesn't just want to show that he's greater than Baal. He's going to expose Baal as a fraud. That's what's going on here. See, in truth, there is no Baal. Baal's existence, if anything, is like a shadow, right? With a shadow, it looks like there's something, but in fact, there's really nothing at all, right? A shadow has no true independent existence. Neither does Baal. There's nothing behind the shadow. That's how the Old Testament thinks about these pagan gods that you find in Canaan. And so this delusion has got to be shattered, right? Because just like every delusion, where it makes inroads, it... It misorients people, and it leads to ingratitude. It leads people to give credit where credit isn't due. That's why the Israelites are now looking to Baal to give them rain and, and crops. But according to the Old Testament, relying on Baal for that is about as ridiculous as relying on the Canucks to get a Stanley Cup. Okay? You get the point, right? There's only one real God. As we'll see, rain, fertility, and life and death... They're all in his hands. One real God. That's the point here. 
So let's go to chapter 17 now. What we're going to see through Elijah is the beginning of a showdown between Yahweh and the delusion of Baal. And it's going to play out in this chapter and also next week. Let's glance at verses 1 to 5. Now Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. And then the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, Elijah, leave here and go eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from a brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him to do. And he went to that ravine east of Jordan, and he stayed there, and the ravens brought him food and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Who's really in charge in Israel? Verse 1 makes it quite clear. It's not Baal. It's Yahweh. Baal can't tie his shoelaces without permission. Baal doesn't control the rain. Yahweh does. And moreover, God, Yahweh is more than capable of taking care of his people in the midst of this difficult time, right? That's the gist of these verses. He sends Elijah to the most barren part of Israel to make this point. Elijah's, this is not a tactical retreat. This is a, a mission with a meaning, right? There is no normal steady food supply east of the Jordan, verse 2. I was there a couple years ago. There is nothing there but sand and sun. The people who live there don't even have the word green in their language. There's nothing there but sand and sun, right? But that doesn't matter. Yahweh provides. The one who controls the rain also stands sovereign over all of nature. He knows where water is to be found, and his ravens are well trained. With God's help, you can survive anything, anywhere. If you lean on Baal, you starve. That's what this story is communicating. Chapter 17 is a parody of Ahab and of Baalism. Elijah's being used to subvert that nonsense. I mean, just look at chapter 18, verse 2, for example, which we didn't read, but it's helpful to, to look at here. Ahab is in his palace, surrounded by the machinery of Baalism. Meanwhile, everyone in his land is starving to death. There's famine, there's hunger, there's no rain. Doesn't seem like Baal can carry the luggage. But Yahweh can. He's actively taking care of his people, not just Elijah, but others, as you read later in chapter 18 and 19. Yahweh is not only present, but he's also greater, and he's going to show himself greater still. Round one of this boxing match isn't over yet. Glance with me at verses 7, 8, and 9. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, Elijah, go at once to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon, and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Elijah's water source dries up. Is that because Yahweh's power has reached its limits? No. The opposite, in fact. God is raising the stakes. That's what's happening here, right? He sends Elijah to Sidon. Does that ring a bell? That's the homeland of Jezebel. That's the center of the Baal cult. That's the one place where Baal should surely have some power and control, his own territory, on his own turf. But it doesn't seem to be the case. There's no rain in Sidon either, right? There's no food. Baal can't even feed his own groupies. And an outsider God, the God of Israel, comes in and he's able to take care of things. Look at verse 12 through 16 with me. At Yahweh's direction, Elijah asks a widow for bread. And this is what she says. She says, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil and a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. 
And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it over here to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That jar of flour will not be used up and that jug of oil will not run dry. Will not run dry. Excuse me, it happens sometimes. Until the Lord sends rain to the land. So she went away and she did as Elijah had told her. And there was food every day. And the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil didn't run out. Keeping with the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. This is what you call a home turf spanking, right? For you rugby fans, this is pretty much what the All Blacks do to the Australians every time they go over to play rugby. <laughs> what Yahweh is doing here is showing that Baal is completely impotent, right? Just like a shadow. Baal can't do a thing, right? The jaws of death are about to gobble up this woman and her son, but Baal's nowhere to be found, right? But Yahweh comes in, he can save them. His power is greater. Look at verse 15. They're eating a meal every day during the midst of a famine. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment for a brief interjection here. I recognize that some of you may be rolling your internal eyes about the miraculous events that have just been reported in this text, right? We're part of a culture that knows better, right? Not so fast. In actuality, we're part of a culture that says if something doesn't happen more than once, then it's not real. We're part of a culture that says if something can't be repeated in a lab or managed in some sort of sociological experiment, then it's bogus. Now, that theory, the necessity of repeating things, has been very helpful for modern science and has brought us a lot of wonderful technology, right? But it's a theory that also has its limits. One of those limits is the inability to make sense of things that only happen once things that are sometimes called miracles. Yet sometimes things only happen once. Not only in the Bible, but also in the world today. So perhaps our late modern scientific sensibilities need to be interrogated a little bit. Right? Perhaps we're more committed to a system that says, this is how things have to be than we are to how things actually are. You ever thought about that? If that's how you think, I understand. Believe me, I've been there, and in, in all honesty, there are parts of me that probably are still there. You can think as you like, but sometimes it's good to rethink these things, unless you prefer to stay in the matrix, that is. Back to the text. What's being revealed to us in this report with the widow and the food, right? I like to put it like this. Yahweh is not Israel's version of Baal. Right? That's probably something the Israelite people at this time needed to know. Yahweh's not a tribal God. He's not the God of this little culture, this little territory, this little people group. He is the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. That's the big message of the Bible in a world that is filled with counterfeit rivals. This revelation gains more force in what comes next. Let's look now at verse 17 and then 19 through 22. A high point of this text, no doubt. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally he stopped breathing. Give me your son, said Elijah. He took the son from her in his arms, and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid the boy on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow who I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And then Elijah stretched himself out over the boy three times, and he cried out to the Lord. 
Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Death is once again knocking at the door, but this time death comes right on in. The son of Elijah's hostess has expired. They made it through the famine, but for what? Just to die? Something hugely significant is unfolding here, right? One commentator puts it like this. It's one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can Yahweh do anything when death has clamped tight and swallowed the victim up? That's the million-dollar question. Now's a good time to recall some of that Canaanite mythology I told you about earlier, right? Remember that Baal in that mythology is subject to Mot, the god of death, right? In other words, there is a sphere over which Baal does not have any power, no control. Death is not under his thumb. He's under death's authority. But Yahweh is not. When face-to-face with Mot, when face-to-face with the power of death, already consumes somebody, Yahweh does not bow a knee. There are no borders that he cannot cross victoriously. And so the boy's life returns, as verse 22 says. And mourning turns into dancing. The net result of this is expressed in verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. This lady knows power when she sees it. The switch is flipped. And we should notice all this happened not because Elijah convinced her, right? It happened because Elijah let God use him to facilitate a situation where God's power could be displayed. That's how it happens. Think about that. I think there's a lesson for us for the church in that. Think about it. By the end of chapter 17, Baal's pretty much been exposed as a fraud, right? He's limited. Yahweh's unlimited. Wherever Yahweh is, life breaks out abundantly. That's what this story is telling us. Elijah's name has been validated. The Lord is God. And the Lord wants everybody to see this, not just the Israelites, not just the Sidonians, but all of us and everybody in this city and in the whole world. So how about a bit of application? What borders do you think God can't cross in your life? Are there places? Are there workplaces? Neighborhood places? Social places? Educational places? Where you think God can't work? Are there people? Are there men and women into whose life you think God can't cross? Friends, God has boundary-bursting power. Do you know it? Are you operating in the confidence of it? Am I? That's the question, right? I mean, does it impact, for example, your willingness to give people gifts, like the Bible? Maybe a book by C.S. Lewis or a blog by Alistair Stern, right? Does it lead you to cross boundaries by asking questions, questions like, would you be interested in coming to Alpha? Does it embolden you to talk to your friends and your peers and your colleagues about what you do on Sunday mornings? The church doesn't just grow by Christians having babies. It grows by doing what Elijah did, following God's lead. we got to get on the bandwagon. And sometimes when that's not happening, it's because the resistance is in us, not the people out there. We're the ones who have some borders that need to be crossed in our own hearts. We don't want to block the greatness of God's power. Yet the greatness of God's power is not the only thing we're supposed to see in this story. There's something else. It's a greatness in terms of nobility of character. 
God is good and in a way that nobody else is. Here's how it goes. Yahweh is someone who loves his enemies. And Yahweh is someone who loves people that the world otherwise overlooks. Baal doesn't do that. Most humans don't do that. But that's what Yahweh is all about. Look again at verse 8. Elijah is sent to Sidon, the land of Jezebel, Baal territory. These are the people who are persecuting the Israelites right now as this story is happening. That's where Elijah is sent. We might expect that he was sent there to do some act of terrorism. But that is not what happens. It results in an act of radical hospitality and radical compassion. Do you see this? God shows himself to be someone who loves his enemies in very practical terms. And in doing that, he turns an enemy person, a worshiper of Baal, the widow and her son, into a friend. That's the business of heaven. But it gets better. Let's think about who specifically Yahweh sends Elijah to. This is what we can say about the person, a woman a widow, someone in poverty, a foreigner, someone who has an orphan child and a child who's pretty sickly. In historical setting, that is not someone that's going to be likely to receive much attention, let alone blessing. That's someone who's likely to fall through the cracks, someone whose life is not going to be deemed to possess much worth or much potential, a person who's not going to be on anybody's A-list, but she's God's top priority. The Lord has a special affection for those that aren't considered winners in the normal sense of the world. That's good news for me. I suspect it's good news for some of you too, and maybe it could be for others. The God who is speaking to us right now loves the folks that are otherwise classified as drains to the system or social liabilities or beyond rehabilitation or not worth investing in. That's who God especially loves. Do you see what I mean when I say Yahweh is greater in terms of nobility and character? It's a claim that hardly needs defending. But while it doesn't need defending, it does need hearing. It's something we need to hear. It's something every human needs to hear. The great power, the astounding character of God. Why? Because chapter 17 of the book of 1 Kings is, in a sense, our story. It's our story. We're the people surrounded by death. There's a lot of death bound up in our existence, right? Our worlds of relationship, for example, are filled with death and decay. Many of our families are, right? Our internal narratives are often filled with death and darkness. Our planet is filled with the rubble of death. Our bodies, as some of you in this church right here, right now, know all too well, our bodies are bristling with the extinguishing forces of death. In the end, we're doomed. For death will one day knock at our door and it will come on in and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. Of course, we try to hold it at bay, right? We, we create our own bales, systems that let us feel that we can manage and be in control of things. Economic systems, political systems, military systems, but also cosmetic surgery systems and medical systems and even cryogenic systems. Those things can all be just like what Baal was to the Canaanite peoples, a means to manage the harsh reality of, of a life that's marked by a lot of death. They're tools that promise to, to keep our greatest common enemy at bay. But deep down, we all know that it's a desperate scramble to avoid what's inevitable. In the end, there's always a mot standing behind our bales. 
there's always death standing at our efforts to cling to life. And so like the boy in verse 17, we expire in a state of helplessness without any ultimate capacity to resist and with great grief and sorrow. Yet the grief and sorrow that we feel are shared. We're not, we're not alone in this story, thank goodness. Look at verse 21 and 22. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times, and he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard that cry, and the boy's life came back. What happened here? This isn't about, this isn't of Elijah. This is an act of God, but it's not really just an act. It's actually a habit of God, because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do you know it? That's why in the end, what happens in this story here isn't just something that God does through Elijah. It's also something God does to Elijah. You see, Elijah's time isn't limited to just his days here in 1 Kings, right? He pops back up. Over 500 years later in the New Testament, right, he appears next to Jesus Christ in a moment of great power and radiance called the Transfiguration. And in that moment, while Elijah, the great prophet, is standing next to Jesus, a voice speaks, and what does it say? Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Cling to him. Jesus Christ is Yahweh with us, Yahweh in the flesh. And it was his power at work in Elijah to restore the life of that boy, to bring that resurrection. Elijah's not an ancient Near Eastern witch doctor, right? He's, he's a conduit for God's saving grace and power. When he spoke over the child, he didn't speak a spell, he prayed. This is what happened. And the power of Jesus is the very reason that Elijah himself is not dead, but that he is, in fact, very much alive and well, as we know from the New Testament where he pops up again. Here's the thing. What God did through Elijah and what he did to Elijah is something he wants to do for you and for me. That's God's promise. In fact, that is God's glory. Elijah stretched himself over one boy, and he cried, he cried out, give him life. He cried out three times. Jesus Christ did so much more than that. When his arms were stretched out on the cross, they were stretched out for the life of the whole world. And he didn't just cry out, one, two, or three times, take death away. He actually entered into death for three days, three agonizing days. Not for one person, but for many. Not for other people, but for you. So that life, rather than death, might define our existence. That's what Jesus desires more than anything else. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 says, it is his joy. And you better believe he can deliver. There's no mot behind Jesus, right? There's no death in his reality. He overcame death. Right? Death tried to clamp down on him, but he smashed it. That's why the New Testament was written, to report that news and to tell us that Jesus Christ shares that victory. One of the hymns we sing here at least once a month puts it so well, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That means if Jesus Christ embraces you, death will never engulf you. It means that if you cling to Jesus as your Lord, everything that you are and will be is going to be totally redefined, minus death, eternally. All that is right now is not all that will be. That's what it means.
Does this mean we won't experience some form of bodily death? Most of us probably will. That's what the scripture says. But it means that our dying will not be the last word. There is more to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last words before he was executed by the Nazis put it so well. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Do you know this? Do you see what God is up to? Will you let yourself be swept up by this love and this power that comes to offer us life abundant? May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and also to the world.